Professors FM. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David Spiegelhalter, or should I say Sir David Spiegelhalter, uh, who is now Emeritus Professor of Statistics at uh, Cambridge University, formerly the Professor of the Public Communication of Risk. Public understanding of risk. Okay, yeah. You can't guarantee understanding. You can only guarantee the, the, the communication but also the author of a bunch of books. This one, I think, is the one, probably the most recent one. It's called The Art of Statistics, How to Learn from Data. And then there's this one. I don't know if this one came out later, The COVID by Numbers, Making Sense of the Pandemic with Data. And then you've got The Norm Chronicles, Stories and Numbers about Danger and Death and Sex by Numbers. Oh, you you got the whole the whole collection. I'm, I'm most impressed. Well, and a new book coming out on uncertainty, which I, I look forward to. Because as I mentioned, this book, uh, Art of Statistics, when I was reading it, I mean, I teach statistics, right? So when I read this, I'm like, wow, okay. What kind of stories can I steal and beg and borrow? And maybe I can send to tell the students, hey, just read this and, and don't waste any time with the textbook. But I guess the first question I want to ask you is, are you the first person to be knighted for the contribution to statistics since Ronald Fisher? I mean, Nougat, not a lot of people. I mean, it's usually you got to be a soccer star or you got to invent a, a medicine or something. No, there's, there's uh, Sir Adrian Smith, there's Sir Ian Diamond, Sir David Cox, of course, has been a famous one. No, it's quite a lot. Yeah, we can make a football team of knighted statisticians. Yeah. Now, that might be a Monty Python skit. Uh, <laughs> 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 but let's start just with the, the big question, which is, why isn't statistics a more important part of our, our curriculum? I can't imagine how you can go through life without some basic understanding of probability and statistics. I remember, this was a couple of years ago, during the pandemic, I was teaching a course on, on behavioral economics. And in that class, I spent a lot of time talking about objective versus subjective perception of risk, which is something that that I learned about 30 years ago in, in graduate school in a class where I first was exposed to the work of Kahneman, Tversky, Paul Slovic, and, and others. And I just sort of asked them, hey, what is your probability of dying of COVID contingent on infection? This was right around the time when the vaccines were launched. And these were students in their 20s and 30s. And this is probably the biggest event in their lives, <laughs> you know, like the, the biggest global event that had impacted them. And they were off, to, off by multiple orders of magnitude. And so their entire lives are being affected by this perception of risk. And they didn't, it didn't seem like they did even the tiniest bit of research into figuring out what their actual risks were. Now, these were PhD students, financial engineers. And so if they're going to be so completely off base, what hope is there for ordinary people? Why don't we make statistics, which is a form of, I guess, critical reasoning in the modern world, why is this not integral to our teaching to students at K-12 through undergrad and certainly in grad school? What I think it is becoming more important. I think what you're saying is recognized by many people that actually being able to interpret data, critique the claims based on data, 
is an essential skill in modern life. I think it's absolutely essential for citizenship, essentially. Although, of course, you've got to want to critique those claims. And you know, if you talk behavioral economics, you'll totally know you'll know all about the biases, the confirmation biases, and everything that we're all subject to, that we all seek out the information that supports what we think already. But you know, it, it, even people who say, oh, we don't want to do it, we really want to know, yeah, they find it difficult, first of all, to, in a way to access many of those magnitudes and then to put them in perspective. And I think that I can't stand, I used to be professor of the public understanding of risk. And the main thing I just couldn't stand was people talking about, oh, there's a risk of, or this is an increased risk of. To talk about risk without talking about magnitude, I think is an abominable thing to do. It's manipulative. It's always manipulative. If someone's going to talk about risk, they are trying to worry you, basically. And they're, they're trying to manipulate your emotions. And as you said, most of the time we talk about increased risk and the risk of without having any idea what the magnitude is. And uh, even if we do, it's quite difficult to know, is that a big number or not? So I think that this is absolutely essential that people, whenever people are told something, a claim, they should ask, how big is it? And is this really a big number? Is this really important? There may be an increased risk and everything like that, but is this really important or not? And I, I teach journalist statistics all the time, and I keep on trying to push the idea of don't just say there's an increased risk. Do we care? It's maybe a good store. So what you're saying, there, there are newspapers and magazines that require their <laughs> journalists to study this? Tomorrow, I, got, I think I've got a class of 30 journalists that I'm talking to at the Science Media Center, which I'm really excited about. And I've done it quite regularly. But it's not compulsory at all. It's only the really the science journalists who want to do it. But they realize how important it is when they constantly get press releases and papers making grand claims and then you look at them and it's a great table full of odds ratios and confidence intervals and p-values and so forth. oh my god because these people are not trained to do this I, I think i spent much of my life explaining what a hazard ratio is for example these are really important issues for journalists whatever so they can help the public understand this stuff so basically yeah i think it's important i think it's recognized in the u.s and everywhere that training in well, I wouldn't say statistics, data science, but stats and data, basic data literacy is absolutely vital for modern citizenship. And many educational systems are grasping this, I think, in the States and elsewhere. They're trying to get it into the curriculum. There's a problem with the curriculum in that it doesn't really belong in maths. I don't think it's part of math. It uses math. Lots of things use math. Physics uses math. This is uh, a lot of its numeracy, but a lot of it's to do with understanding about how you find out about things. Well, what is the research process? Can we believe what we're being told? It's not just numeracy because we have to be able to critique the numbers. It's a complex thing which lies right in the middle of everything. So actually, it's quite difficult to fit into an educational system, especially the UK system. It's incredibly siloed into subjects. You've got to have an examinable subject, bonk maths, methods, geometry, algebra, blah, blah, blah. And data literacy just doesn't fit into it. So one of the most important things you're saying, I think, for modern citizenship is not really part of the school curriculum. Yeah, I mean, it may fit more logically into, say, critical thinking, because I remember critical thinking used to be something that was taught fairly widely. I don't think it is as, as much. No, no it, it, I, that's the trouble with those those sorts of things. There's in the International Baccalaureate, it's taken quite seriously, but um, elsewhere, it's just something to 
spend on a Friday afternoon or something. You know, so it's not because it's not a subject in the same way as Latin and or French or physics is. Because you can't get a PhD in critical thinking, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. It's citizenship, so it, it is quite difficult to fit it in. I think the thinking uh, I've been people I've been involved with, but I think they just what you have to do is maybe tr- there's a phrase that, that's being developed now in the UK called MDE, Mathematics and Data Education just to see it essentially as a whole. So it's not part of mathematics and data education. So they do go together in a sense. There's, qual- there's quantitative reasoning. But then you can break that up into what you might call the old, good old-fashioned maths, which we have to know. People have got to be able to do calculus and geometry. They need to. You need all that stuff. It's incredibly important. I love it. But then you also need the second pillar, which is it's a, a terrible phrase, quantitative literacy, which is both sort of financial mathematics, but also modeling and understanding exponential growth and, and statistics. And that is a, a really important part. Now, how to get those two pillars into the school system is something that I'm in a group that we're wrestling with at the moment, trying to get into the UK school system that they've got these two pillars. Both of them are really important because so many kids can't stand the maths. It's a real shame. They get left behind. They don't like it. They never know why. What's the point of all these x's and stuff they never get it they never and a lot of people have difficulty with basic mathematical stuff and it's awful if that means oh they i can't do maths and they don't have an opportunity to develop an understanding of how numbers numbers are used in society and how fun it can be (laughs) to take a be able to take apart the claim that you hear and know the tricks that they're playing on you and what you can do to pull it apart. Well, right. I mean, you know, for some of this, you don't actually need all that many numbers. And I think in the art of statistics, the number of formulas that are in there, pretty minimal, right? I mean, God, there's no... You don't need... You always got some... You got, you got, yeah, you always got software to do the stuff. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if I got to learn about data science, I need to learn to program. I need to learn Python and stuff. So, you know, when I teach my uh, data science class for MBAs, we, we don't do any programming, right? There are other classes where you can, but I try to say, okay, we're going to do no code, low code, keep it relatively easy, focus on inference. And, you know, I think statistics is one of those fields where there's the biggest multiplier that you get from good teaching, right? Some disciplines, the quality of the teacher is not that important. You can, whatever, read the book, but stats is one where the, the quality of teacher is just everything. I remember when I was an undergraduate in business school, I took stats with this professor and it was just, oh my gosh, it was terrible. It was just the guy was on the whiteboard and he was just writing out all these formulas and Greek letters and I was zoning out, switched to a different instructor and it just popped. It was just came to life and I was so excited. And you're someone who is, was a professor of the communication uh, of risk. It, it seems like this is a, a field where Communication is critical, right? The way in which you translate it into the understanding for most people is really important. Well, you may not have known. I used to teach statistics at Berkeley. No, I didn't know that. I had a year there. In the stats department? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After I'd done my PhD, I went there. I went to Berkeley for a year and taught the two stats courses. You know, you have to get through some methods and things like that. And then I always used to have a little segment in the middle, an interlude. And I usually used to use stories from the National Enquirer because you could absolutely guarantee there'd be some absolute crap statistics in that every week. So it was wonderful. No, I used to teach that and made an effort and I've always enjoyed teaching and I do think it's important. But And I suppose that's why I got into a communication job having done a research job for so long is that I did find that I really like trying to 
communicate really quite complex, difficult topics in a way that people can grasp them. Stats is full of actually quite difficult, even apart from the ma- take the maths out, it's still got difficult concepts in it. I think it's not straightforward at all. It's not even probability, I think is, again, even with the maths not in there, it's really quite subtle and difficult. And so I think it is good to try. And that's why I wrote the book. In fact, I'm really glad you, you like it because the whole idea was to use it as an adjunct on courses for people who were also doing a slightly more technical course, but wanted something that was didn't have the technicalities in it, but did have the arguments and the ideas and the concepts in it and talked about some of those issues. And it's gone very well like that and being used in, I, I was particularly interested in where you're talking about data science, people, there's so many people now moving into data science who haven't had a very strong mathematical background or coming from other subjects into data science, which is great, wonderful. But within data science, I think that's basic old fashioned statistical ideas, incredibly important. And so that's the other audience I was writing for. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of people who jump into data science, they skip over some basic stuff like bias, like sampling bias and, and so forth. And they think, oh, we got all the data, so we're, we're good to go. Yeah, we got all the data. We got lots of data, big data. Oh, yeah, we're, who needs all this statistics stuff? We got lots of it, which is, I think, I, you, you may know better than I, people must have grown out of that by now, just thinking, oh, if you've got enough data, we could solve this problem. Because uh, without knowing how good your data is, how representative, does it can actually answer the question that's asked? I think you do. Let's jump into risk. Is this, these concepts like micro-mort and micro-life, these are incredibly powerful concepts. You know, when it comes to financial expenditure, I think most people are pretty good about it. Not great, but if you say to someone, hey, you know, this box of pasta is going to cost you $3 and this box of pasta is going to cost you, you know, $2.75, they kind of know what that means. Now, yeah, there might be some differences in, in quality or, or convenience or whatever, but I think people can make those kinds of, of comparisons, right? Now, look, when there's intertemporal factors and spillovers and life cycles, then it gets a little more complicated. But everyone knows that you can reduce the economic cost of something to a dollar figure. And there's difficulty in present value calculations, et cetera. But when it comes to risk, I don't know very many people who do these comparisons across different activities using a single uh, unit. Now, I, there are exceptions. I have, I have a colleague, a very well-known economist colleague, who I invited him over for dinner during the pandemic. And he said, well, you know, I'd love to, but I have used up my monthly risk budget. <laughs> so he had a very clear idea of what his budget constraint was <laughs> and like how much he had spent. But that's, that was the first time I ever met any real live human being who talked like that, right? So first of all, maybe tell everybody what a micromort is and then how it's so powerful. But then also, like, how do we get people to start thinking this way? Uh, I think it is quite difficult. But, uh, but micromort, that was, it was Ron Howard at Stanford who developed the idea of a micromort. So I thought it was genius when I heard it because it sounds, the trouble is it sounds a bit silly, even though it's deadly serious. You could use a different unit, like driving 100 miles or whatever, right? Uh, yeah, I, but I quite like the micromort because it does provide, as you said, a common scale to put lots of different activities into. It's to do with sudden death. It's not to do with chronic disease or cancer. It's to do with essentially accidental death or, or, or maybe not accident because it could be homicide or something, but a sudden death. There's a one in a million chance of dying while you're conducting some activity. You may be motorcycling or you may be climbing a mountain, you may be doing something. One in a million. And it's quite a useful unit because on average, roughly in the US and UK, roughly speaking, it's very much an average. We all have about experience about one micromort a day um, in terms of a risk. So one in a million chance that 
I'll wake up in the morning and I go to bed dead because something awful has happened to me. Something sudden has happened to me. But it depends on your age. If you're a young kid who's driving around fast cars, and things like that, getting into fights or whatever, it's going to be a lot more. And if you're not, actually, if you're an old person, it starts going up again because you have a, then have a tendency to fall downstairs and fall down ladders and things like that, which is a thing that started happening to me. So I have to watch out because it starts going up again, your, your daily risk. But roughly it's one. So that's a, quite a nice metric because we can live with that. We live with that. We don't stay indoors and stay in bed because something awful might happen to us. We get out there and we drive and we walk down the street and we obviously we don't go mad, but we are prepared because we know that if you don't take some risks, you can't exist. You, know, you just cannot do anything. It's completely hopeless. You've got to do something that exposes you to some risk, not unnecessary. So it's quite a good unit. But then, and what's quite nice is that it, for a lot of danger, what we might call sort of slightly risky activities, a lot of them are in small numbers. So doing a parachute jump is I mean, seven, or I think it's seven in the US at the moment, or 10 or something like that, every parachute jump, well, on average. Now, it'll vary. It'll vary. This is just an average. Running a marathon is about seven. People do drop dead when they run marathons. Skydiving is about eight or something. There's a lot of things around about scuba diving is about five for a reasonably trained diver. You could see these are all activities that people know carry a bit more risk, but they're all prepared to do because they're fun and they enjoy them. They're exciting. So you can see what most people are prepared to trade off in terms of getting a thrill they're prepared to do. And I saw, I, I made a TV program and I jumped out of a plane two miles up. I was strapped to somebody and that was quite a relief. And it was great fun. But I thought, okay, here goes 10 micromorphs. <laughs> Although I watched the guy wrap the parachute and do what he do is really good. But you never know. Something could happen. And then you went to the pub after and added a few more micromorphs, right? <laughs> a few more, a few more. Drove home and that was a few more. Although about slightly less than the year, but in the UK, it's about 250 miles in a car for a micromorph, but only about seven miles on a motorbike. I don't, I won't get on a motorbike now. It's the one thing that has influenced me, I think. Um, because some fool might take me out. Yeah, I remember I, w- I was thinking of buying a motorcycle and I went to the motorcycle shop near my house and the owner came out in a, in a wheelchair, breath-controlled wheelchair. <laughs> and I was like, I'm out of here. I shouldn't be laughing, but this is, I was like, this, is, this guy, you should not be on the floor. This is not how you sell motorcycles. But people have different opportunity costs, right? So if you're living a, a more dangerous life, then your opportunity cost of engaging in risky behavior is going to be lower, right? And, and I think the crucial thing you put in the equation is this word fun actual excitement, enjoyment, getting something out of life. So we've got to, you've got to do it. I know I like traveling. I like, I try not to do too risky things, but I'm prepared to expose myself to a certain amount of risk in order to have fun, just get a, get, I wouldn't say a thrill necessarily, but, but there's things like, which I think go beyond that base jumpers and people who hurl themselves off mountainsides wearing a, you know, a bit of plastic as a wingsuit. Now, that's the one in Norway, about 400 micromorts every time. And I think that's too much to hurl yourself off a cliff with a parachute. I think that's a bit much. But can you imagine a day when, for instance, you go to the ski shop and they have the the helmet for sale and and it says, hey, this cost you a hundred bucks for the helmet. You're going to get this many micromorts per day, right? you know what I mean? It's saved for about, yeah. Yeah. Maybe if the government mandated this, this would become part of common lingo. But the other thing is that you should get people to pay you to expose yourself to microphones. So if I'm asked to give a talk, I don't want to drive to give the talk. I don't see why I should expose myself to a micromort 
or so, doubled my risk of dying that day, essentially, just because somebody wants me to drive to give a song and make sure I give a train. I'm very reluctant to drive. Ron Howard said he'd charge people every time he had to fly or drive something because of his risk exposure. I think he said it was about $10 a micromort, which places a sort of statistical human life about $10 million, which is actually not a bad rough you know, figure. Well, I do teach finance also. And one of the things that I have my students do is I have them do an audit, right? I tell them, hey, use personal finance software so that you can go back and see, okay, how did I spend my money? And then look at each bucket and say, hey, did my you know marginal utility per dollar spent on clothing, you know, is it higher or lower than what I spent on food or vacation or whatever? And if you're not really too excited about that last pair of jeans you bought, but you're super excited about that last day in Cancun, then maybe you, you need to adjust things. Presumably, we, if we had a budget for our, you know, risk, we could go through and, and perform the same exercise and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff that's super risky that I'm not really enjoying. And then I'm doing all this other stuff that I really enjoy. I could kind of reallocate things. I, I used to go around talking to people who took some risks and asked them about their attitude. You know, there are various good survey questionnaires you can do about attitudes to risk in different areas. And people have, you can vary huge. I've known people who did took enormous amount of risk, physical risks, but were really um, prudent financially and things like that. I've known people who've taken a, a lot of really seriously dangerous drugs who also were really careful in other ways. And then they, then they watch what they eat. And things like that. So yeah, I, I, it's not just a single risk taking, but there's some people who are just... Uh, don't have a aren't thoughtful about things but i think that for many people they there's one area one of some areas which they would take some risk and others in which they can be perhaps over cautious it's very different it is quite difficult to balance because as paul slovic would say there's risk as analysis and there's risk as feeling he's it's thinking fast and slow and all those things we know there's two systems of thinking that operate in us both or all the time, simultaneously, complete and complementary. Thank goodness, they're both there. And risk as analysis, which is what we're talking about, is very often dominated by risk as feeling. And you've got to have risk as feeling, I think, in there as well. But it's when risk as one of them takes over. And I think the real problem with this is that if you just operate on risk as feeling, it's so easy to be manipulated by people going, oh, this is awful, this is awful, you've got to be really careful of this. And you think, no, it's not bad. Or understating what the risks of some things are. So I think that, again, we're coming back to the old thing about you know, what we are talking about before, about literacy, is that if you're very vulnerable, if you only operate on risk as feeling, you really are, you're open, vulnerable to manipulation. Now, look, governments have begun to incorporate this way of thinking into their regulations. I know here in the United States, we actually in the UK also, there's a statistic value of, of life. And so I want to ask, is that based on acute risk or chronic risk and acute risk? Does it make sense for them to require that every governmental body use the, the same number, right? Because if people do have different feelings, then they're going to presumably want the government to spend a whole lot more keeping the sharks from eating them than from dying in the workplace from, I don't know, falling off a ladder, right? Yeah, but I think the point is that the government values put on are to do with societal risk. It's society's attitude to how much we should spend to prevent a fatality, value of a preventive VOPF or something like that, which in the UK at the moment... I think in the US about $5 million or something like that. I'm not sure. I think it's $8 million now. $8 million. $8 million it's gone up to. Well, that puts a micromort as $8. It's inflation. Yeah, it's inflation. So that's a micromort at 
is, is the equivalent because these aren't identifiable people. These are accumulated small risks that add up to that. Oh, eight million. Ooh, I think we're about only about two or three, two and a half million in the UK. I think it's a real. You can kill two people in the UK for the price of killing a person in the US. <laughs> it's a one. Yeah, exactly. But remember, these are statistical people. If they were identifiable people, of course, people spend a huge amount more. If there's one kid stuck down a well or something, people will spend a fortune to rescue them. So it's very, these are statistical lives and it's not. These are accumulated small risks and what they were. So it's putting a micromort at $8, which is seems reasonable. And I think this is a valuable thing to do from a societal perspective because it's how much, in a way, we, if we think of society, governments as representing us, we as a whole community are prepared to pay to reduce the risk to us all. And I think that's a reasonable. Now, as individuals, of course, we have our own autonomy to decide whether to take more or less. Now, of course, you know you wrote a whole book on the um, statistics of COVID, and we can reverse engineer based on policies what the Im- implied right price of micromort is. If we go back and there's ex post and ex ante, of course, ex post I think our policies were much less uh, effective probably than we had hoped in terms of reducing excess deaths. But even ex ante, right, when we were making decisions around interventions and lockdowns and so forth, it it seems like the policymakers there, they didn't feel bound by the value of statistical life that was applied in more reflective decision-making. Extraordinary how the moment the pandemic started. In the UK, we've got quite a rigorous assessment method for healthcare interventions. There's a whole body that evaluates this, it values human life, and it puts all that and decides whether government should pay for these drugs and all these treatments, things like that. All went out the window. The moment the pandemic started, just vast amounts of money spent for the, on this thing. It all went out the window, that that cost-effectiveness thinking. It is interesting. I mean, you, you say $8 million at the moment. That means that an intervention that would save 120 lives, the US government should be prepared to pay a billion dollars for it. If you do use that figure, it does actually justify spending quite a lot of money on preventive measures. Serious amount. Oh, yeah, of course, vast amounts of money were spent. But I think I, I don't. I haven't looked. Anyone's done it, as you said. What was the implicit and certainly unthought of at the time value of a human life? This, but partly because people, as you said, don't didn't know what they were preventing. You never know exactly what you're preventing. But we at the start, we just didn't really know what the risks were, and we certainly didn't know the effectiveness of interventions. Otherwise, as you say, we wouldn't. There's all sorts of things we wouldn't have done, and some things we might have done. But I mean, it seems like that's information that's, that's absolutely critical to your decision making, and you could should prioritize the acquisition of that information, right? So yeah, I, I, and, and as statistician, that's the thing that really irritated me throughout the pandemic was the lack of empirical investigation of the effectiveness of interventions. We closing schools, oh, you know, is this going to help? What are all these policies about closing? stuff and not letting people do things come on experiment finally in 2021 we did in the uk there was a randomized experiment they randomized schools to different policies of sending kids home in 100 schools with one policy 100 schools with another monitor what happened and they found out that they'd been spending vast amounts sending all these kids home with no benefit whatsoever finally and if people have been I think politicians find it really difficult to say we're going to do experiments with public health but of course, you should do that. Otherwise, you're just going. Well, we're doing them all the time. We're just doing them in a in a way that doesn't allow for the generation of insight. <laughs> exactly. Does it? That makes it impossible to work out what the benefits of these things are. So, I I do think it's it's really important to try to 
yeah, you get some idea of magnitudes. Now, in the UK, certainly this has changed because now vaccines are not being offered to large groups, they're only being offered to some people. And I presume, although I haven't seen it, there will be a cost effectiveness analysis behind that, taking into account the possible harms, the vaccines, and the costs, whether it's actually worth doing. Because I was on a panel years ago in the UK that did look at a vaccine program in the UK needs to go through this cost effectiveness business. Is it worth doing this in terms of the health benefit, the cost and the, of the whole program, delivery of the program in terms of the health benefits? There's no point rolling out health programs unless they're going to be value for money. There are other experiments that could have, like, for instance, challenge trials, right? So if we wanted to understand the mechanism of transmission, if we wanted to understand the infectiousness, you'd run these challenge trials. And I remember people saying, oh, we can't do that. They're, they're too risky. Of course you can. They, they finally did it. Yeah. They, they, were, they were young people. You, Micro Morris. Yeah. Did, you pay young people to do it. Plenty of volunteers. You mentioned like sending somebody on a bomber mission. <laughs> it's like, we'll, put, we'll do that. Yeah, exactly. You're, you put people through all sorts of high-risk situations in code, getting them, expecting them to work in these high-risk situations. And yet when people say, yeah, give me a, th- give me a few thousand dollars, I'll get infected, infect me. And which is, happens all the time in, for drug trials. And it's not like this is a new thing to have young, healthy volunteers being paid to take drugs. And even in the UK, we used to have a common cold unit, which where they people, which is a coronavirus, where they were, people were deliberately infected with coronaviruses. It's a common cold, and but actually, the so I think again, I think people were scared of that. What would people say? I think that this is treating the public with contempt. I think you need a, a boldness to if you're going to make like experiment with schools, experiment with people, experiment on people. You just be absolutely upfront about what we're doing. And we got volunteers, and this we think this who's got got to go through an ethics panel and things like this, and because as you might have mentioned about the COVID, the risk to young people, even if they did get COVID, was incredibly low, you know, very low indeed. The risk for older people of my age and older was incredibly high, was very high. <laughs> if I'd got COVID, when I do, I did get it eventually, but I had been vaccinated. I've had it a couple of times probably. But if I got COVID for someone my age, late sixties, the infection fatality rate was about one percent. That's ten thousand micromorts. God, no, come on. <laughs> that's not great 10,000 it's not quite a bombing mission bombing missions over Germany the second world were about 20 30,000 so it's not quite but it's up there and it's about the it's not much lower than open heart surgery is now in the US and the UK that's serious risk now I know in the UK they, they did develop a website where you could go I, I taught a course on, on COVID at Stanford and they did develop a website where you could go and you could start answering a series of questions and at the end you would get sort of a IFR based on those characteristics like your age and so forth. But it seems like you could have done this, they could have done this a year earlier, right? So that the people could have a more accurate sense. Is it because they didn't, is it because they didn't want to? I didn't, they didn't want, I was, I haven't talked to anyone about this, but I was on a group that was developing this and it never got approved, which I was really angry about. And they said, government really didn't want this. They really didn't want it which irritates me immensely. So why not? I don't know. I think because they might have, it might have finally revealed to people the massive gradient that people have in terms of risk, because the risk would look, for younger people, would look so low. It would look really low. Unless you make comparisons of other things, it's difficult to interpret what a a one in 10,000 risk is or something like that. Even one in 100 risk might sound low, but one in 100 risk is incredibly high as a fatal risk, very high indeed. Relatively high for something that, 
you're not really getting any benefit from having open heart surgery where you're doing it for a reason you're not just volunteering for it but no one is voluntarily going to take a one in a hundred risk of death so I, th- I think that the government is very reluctant it made me very upset and angry in fact is also i'm not even sure there would have, there was a great demand for it as you said people almost just don't want to know i, I i've always i have found this quite disappointing about a lot of things i've done that I'm, quite, I'm really curious about magnitudes, how big. So I wrote this whole book on sex because I was fascinated in on the data on how how many times people have sex, how many partners they've got. How many, it did sell very well because I'd, in the end, people think about sex. They're interested in sex, maybe, but they're interested in depictions and emotions and things. You just needed a sexier. Yeah, yeah, sex. Yeah, exactly. But the but that book contains zero titillation and zero emotion whatsoever. It's it's a stats book. And I thought people would be interested, but actually they're not very interested in actually knowing what goes on. So maybe there's not a demand from the general public, but certainly there's a demand from policymakers and people. If you're running a university, for instance, and you're trying to figure out like, hey, what do we do? Do we shut down? Because if the law allows you, you can either open or not open. How are you supposed to make these decisions if you don't have access to high quality information, which is what the CDC and all these other governmental bodies are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to provide you with at least information to help you make better decisions. Yeah, I think that uh, there wasn't enough effort to really communicate to people. We, we made a real effort about vaccines, which I think was successful and showed you could do it if you make some effort. This was about the AstraZeneca vaccine wasn't approved in the US anyway, but and the side effects it ended up being shown had rare, nasty blood clot side effects. And But the point about that is that the the harms from the potential vaccine actually increased as you got younger. The potential is about one in a hundred thousand chance of a nasty side effect. But the benefits plummeted as you got younger. <laughs> People my age, a big benefit from big vaccine. Good jab it in me. I've been jabbed I don't know how many times. But but as you got younger, frankly, it's not it's hardly worth having the vaccine. It's certainly once if the vaccine's going to have any risks at all, substantially serious risks at all, don't have it. And so that was they made a decision not to give the vaccine to younger people under 40 and based on a statistical analysis and that was completely accepted by the public we it was we designed some i think quite nice graphics and the deputy chief medical officer went on television bbc live big audience to explain all this stuff and he went through our graphics in some detail but he's a very trusted man very good very trustworthy as well really explained it to be quite complex stuff about age gradients and benefits and harms and it depends how much virus is around and you went through all of this and said so we're not going to give this to young people anymore and everyone said thank you very much no accusations of u-turn or it's just accepted because he treated the public with respect explained some quite complex stuff to them using i think i would say i'm going to boast here some good graphics and it was just went down okay so i just think a lot of this is to do that's why i study communication really i really work on it is that there's a lot of over caution and anxiety in authorities about telling actually being honest to people actually telling people how it is because they don't know how to do it they don't know how to explain magnitudes they think that people are stupid and oh, we, people can't understand risk. Oh, God, if I hear that statement, it just drives me mental. I always say, you don't understand risk, and you have not tried to explain it to people properly. If you say that people don't understand risk. They don't seem to, a lot of people think they don't understand nonlinearity, right? So, for instance, alcohol. Obviously, if you drink four drinks and get in the car, you're going to, not good. But if you drink one drink and you have some, spend some time with your family, right, and your friends, have a pint, like, 
that's good for you. How can something be good for you in moderation and bad for you in excess? That seems people can't seem to grasp that. Is that the idea? No, I think you can. You know, J-shaped curves occur and all sorts. And there's lots of stuff that's good for In fact, most things are, can be good for us in moderation and bad for us. If I, I don't know, only le- le- eat lentils, it's not going to do me any good. <laughs> You're obviously not getting the, the all the diet advice that a typical American gets. Eat only grapefruit, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this is nonsense. And so there's a lot of J-shaped curves around. And people are not stupid. People are manipulated all the time. But if they're given clear information from a trustworthy source who genuinely wants to, them to know and to be empower them to make better decisions, I, and maybe I'm just naive. I don't think I am naive because I've been doing it for years now <laughs> trying to do it. People will say thank you very much. and that and will really appreciate it. Now, look, this micromort concept is useful for acute risks, but for things like smoking, right? There, you're not going to drop dead when you smoke a cigarette, but you are going to, you're buying a little bit of life expectancy. And so this is the concept of micro life. So first of all, could you explain that? And then also one thing that I'm confused about is how do we, what's the exchange rate? Right. How do we think about that? Right. So no, they're roughly, they're, they're roughly about worth about the same. But it's, uh, yeah, in micro life, it's not a joke. But uh, people treat it as a bit of a joke, and it wasn't a joke. And I really take it quite seriously. But it hasn't caught on. But I will explain it because I like it. Because the point is, just like a micro allows you to compare these different activities, whether it's flying a bomber or scuba diving or just living on the same scale, which I think is really valuable and how far you drive and flying and trains, all that sort of stuff. I think it's really valuable. But as you said, a micro life is supposed to do it for all the things that aren't going to kill you on the spot. Sitting on your backside, watching TV for five hours a day, eating bad food, smoking, drinking, all these exposures that we live our lives out and that we know on average will reduce our life expectancy. We've no idea what effect it'll have on us personally, and we really never can. That's possibly if you get if you're a smoker who gets lung cancer, there's about 90% chance it's caught, caused by the smoking. But for most things, we don't know why we exactly why we might have a heart attack or why we might die early or why we might get cancer. Um, but we know there's an association. And so, it, again, it's not quite as easy as I went scuba diving and I died. I had a bad diet and I lived till I was 73 or something like that. You just don't know what the correlation, but we do know the correlation. We really know that quite clearly. We know that smoking 20 cigarettes a day, roughly you lose about eight to 10 years of life on average. It's increasing your annual risk and about doubling your annual risk of death if you smoke 20 a day. Pro rata, and it, it does, looks like for people who smoke less, it looks like it is fairly a smooth curve. That means that if I smoke a, a couple of cigarettes a day, it's going to yeah, maybe lose me a year of life or something like that. And that's equivalent to losing fif- half an hour a day, 15 minutes per cigarette. You don't smoke a cigarette and you lose 15 minutes of life at all. This is purely on average over large numbers of people, large numbers of lives. That's on average the effect. So it's a bit, it's much more nebulous than the micromort, which is really quite clear. I went scuba diving, I died. Out of a million scuba dives, five people would die. So I, I think that it's more dairy, but I really like it because it allows you to put smoking, drinking red meat, alcohol, sedentary behavior sitting in front of the television. So two hours in front of the television is roughly the same effect as two cigarettes. It's about half an hour of your life. And the nice thing is, of course, you can gain microlives by get, by exercising and stuff like that. And, but that's highly non-linear. The benefits from the first 20 minutes of exercising are considerable. It's about 40 minutes. So it's about a microlife and a half, something like that. 
After that, it's about pass. So if you exercise for half an hour, you live an extra half an hour. So you better enjoy exercising because that's the bit, the extra bit you're living. And it's like time, I, which I quite like this image that while you're exercising moderately, your aging stops. You're not aging that half hour. I think that's really nice. If you exercise very much, the benefits, and then eventually it starts harming you. It definitely starts harming you. Highly non-linear. I like to say that nothing ever kills you. It just shortens your life. A lot of people fixate on what's on the um, death certificate. What's on the death certificate, if it says your heart stopped, it could be that you were killed by poverty. It could be that you were killed by smoking. It could be killed by a number of things, but, but ultimately your heart stops. So how do we make those trade-offs? So in, in the COVID situation, uh, we saw things like keeping people out of schools. And so a lot of people would say, this is going to have negative impacts on their life expectancy, right? Because if you're less educated, you live less long. So why do we say that if someone with Alzheimer's and stage four cancer gets COVID and dies, we say COVID killed them. But if someone has their life shortened by you know four months because they were deprived of second grade, we don't say COVID killed them, right? But it did, right? It killed them just as much as as the, the the person in the nursing home got killed by COVID, right? No, they're very difficult. It's guy, those are virtual deaths. The point is that the first you can actually observe the thing, measure the virus, and someone really could be confident about it. Not in all cases, it might just be mentioned rather than a cause. But in the other, it's all based on modeling. It's all based on assumptions. We don't know what's going to happen to these people. And that makes it much more nebulous, much more difficult to compare. It's like the value of statistical life or something like that. We just, by making some road improvements, we reduce the risk a little bit for everybody. We've absolutely no idea of how many we could estimate roughly, perhaps how many lives it might save, but we don't really know, and we don't know who it's going to be, or whatever. So I think it's worthwhile trying to do that sort of exercise in order to try to stop school closures in the future, which I think is a totally disastrous policy. Um awful for kids and it increases inequalities and it's really I'm sure people are doing, economists must be doing that kind of analysis now. I'm sure they are people at LSE and I'm sure we're interested in doing that. So I'm sure people are starting to do those analyses to work out what has been the cost, both in terms of health and future earnings or whatever, in terms of interruptions like that. And I think it's a really valuable exercise, but it is still virtual. It's nebulous modeling. It's not as direct. As I said, when, when you've got a kid down a well, people don't start to, thinking about a value of a statistical life. That's the other thing. When you can put a name on people, you say, well, they died, and it's got a name and a face, we all immediately change our minds. And that's why, actually, I, I got myself thinking much harder about the work we did on comparing vaccines, harms, and benefits. Because if you look at vaccine harms, the the sort of cases with the blood clots, I could put, I actually know some of the names now because they're suing the drug companies. So these are identifiable people for whom, who were harmed by the vaccines. The people who benefit from the vaccines, probably me, could have been me. I have no idea. We have no idea of the identity of the lives saved by the vaccines. And that means these, although, so one is statistical life, the other actual lives, and mathematically we can compare them and look at the balance. But emotionally, and from a personal perspective, these are completely different, and they're very different to the media, and they're very different to lots of people. The fact that one you can put names on, another you can't. So I think this is something that this rational perspective of making these, trying to look at benefits and harms using a common metric, 
it can be challenged. I feel a bit torn about it because my rational, I don't like that word, but my sort of quantitative self wants to just, in a way, count the bodies, whether they're real bodies or they're virtual bodies. But I know that these carry a very different impact on people and me as well. I, I'm also a lawyer. And oh, well, <laughs> in tort law, we talk about causation. And I mean, this is a, a tricky concept because let's suppose that there is a factory and the factory is polluting. And so the cancer rate doubles in, in the community. Now, leaving aside the possibility that this is just an outlier, right? But suppose that we can tie the increase in cancer to the factory. If we have these excess deaths, how do we know which ones? If eight people were going to die and now 16 people die, we don't say, oh, these eight people died from the factory and these people, they're the ones that were going to die otherwise. So we say each one of them is 50% killed by the factory? Yeah, no, and I'll be writing about this for my book, looking at US, US law on this. And it's written into one of the US employment laws about employees. So this is not people outside employees. But if employees die of a cancer that's linked to an exposure, that they their factory, the chemical or something like that, then if the relative risk is greater than two, they get damages because on the balance of probabilities or the balance or the weight of evidence, preponderance of evidence in the US phrase, it was caused by the exposure rather than, even if it would have, it could have happened anyway, but it's more likely than not that it was caused by the exposure. According to the US and as used in the UK as well, I don't think it's quite written in the statute so much, it's more just common law, that a relative risk greater than two means that on the balance of probabilities or preponderance of evidence, if you get it, it was caused by, by if someone who's exposed gets the cancer. So, so that I think that's a really interesting example, as you say, where the law has had to be quantitative and to use risk measures where you cannot prove actual causation in that individual case. So they, what they've done is in, in making a decision about an individual case, they've used population measures, epidemiological measures, which I, you, know, you get the feeling they're very unhappy. I don't know, you know, people don't like doing it, but... I think it's fair enough, I think. Yeah. yeah. Lawyers are not known for their math skills, but I, I don't think it's, you need to understand probability statistics to be a good, to be a good lawyer, if, if only to figure out whether you should settle right, in a particular case, right? Now, COVID must have been a field day for anybody who's interested in, in data. It certainly was for me. I, I managed to put together a whole course around this. And I think it was the first time that a lot of people saw this idea of excess deaths and What's great about this number is that it, it, look, it's not certain, but it's a much better way of measuring the impact than looking at these death certificates, right? Because there's people who die with COVID, but they would have died anyway. And then there's other people that died without COVID, but their deaths presumably might not have happened because of other things, like they didn't go in for their colonoscopy or whatever. So if we're really trying to measure the the, the impact of, of COVID, that's a great number to look at, although it does combine COVID and people's responses to COVID and very difficult to, to disentangle them, right? Yeah, you know, those indirect deaths or, or harms are, are really, of course, you also got indirect benefits, the reduction in the number of homicides and accidents and things like that. I, th I think that I, I'm fascinated, and it is, I think it's great that quite a subtle idea like excess deaths has become absolutely routine. I was on the media throughout the COVID tour and still asked to talk about it, still coming up all the time because there's a continuation and a lot of dispute, a lot of argument about it, some say. It's still people 
claiming oh, it's all the vaccines that are causing the excess deaths now, and there are people claiming all sorts of things. So it's a, a, a continuing discussion, and I think it's great. Let's discuss it, because is it how much is due to problems with the health services, how much of it is due to remnants of COVID? I think it's quite a possibility that many people were harmed by getting COVID, and, and, and that could impact their long-term health, um, not just long COVID symptoms. And as you said, during COVID, it was amazing, the, the popular interest in statistics and data and graphs. I was on the media all the time trying to explain stuff. And that's, I think, carried on. It's, you know, God, is there any good news about COVID? One of the, uh, the small things, I think, might be the greater public tolerance for an interest in data and graphs and more subtle ideas being, being used. Yeah. Now, do you think doctors could use a little bit of education? And um, I'm now teaching in a, um, in, at a medical school, and I don't know how you can make medical decisions without a good understanding of, of probability. I, I went in for a colonoscopy here in, in the U.S., and they they were like, "Okay, we're going to put you under." And I said, "No, no, you're not going to put me under." And it took me four hours of delays, and I had to meet with like eight different people to convince them not to put me under. And it seemed general anesthetics, but but. 10 micromorts, I think, something like that. So I was like, no, I don't want this. And, and they were like, why don't you want it? Like 99% of the people get it and we can bill you for it. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, no. But at no point did anybody ever say, oh, here's a disclaimer. Here's a waiver, right? This is the risk associated with this procedure. Like nothing. So one would think that when you're having a conversation with your doctor, they'd be like, okay, here's option A, here's option B, and here are the relative risks and so forth. But there's none of that. And I think in part it's because they don't know it. Like they, they're, it's not front of mind for them. They don't have these numbers. Often they just don't have the numbers. And anyway, they wouldn't be perhaps very good at explaining them. But in some areas, I think things are improving quite a lot. If, if you get a statin or something like that, people will talk about your 10-year risk of a heart attack or stroke and how it might be should be reduced by a third or a half if you take a statin or whatever. And think, yeah, fair enough. That I did all that, did all the sums. And I thought, yeah, go ahead. Give me the pills. There's some areas, and in cancer prognosis, quite a lot of discussion about 10-year survival and, and, and adjusted for different factors and things like that. So in some areas, there's a much more, uh, they're used to describing things in terms of the best language is always, what would it mean for 100 people like you who tick the boxes, like the same boxes that you did? You shouldn't never say it's your risk because it's never your risk because who knows, because everyone's so different. But if you just say, and, and then you can draw it as 100 little people or something like that to say, well, you know, and same for heart surgery, one or two are not going to survive the surgery, but we don't know who they are. But one or two people like you who have this heart surgery, and when you're signing consent form, they should tell you one or two people are not going to survive, or maybe less, maybe more, depending on your risk factors, how old you are, et cetera. And you should be told that stuff, and you should be told it clearly. And I think with little graphics and stuff like that, what we'd expect to happen to 100 people who were as like you as we can measure. They're never completely like you. So I, I think this is something that people should expect and demand and and can be done. But as you said, people aren't trained to do it. And also, as you said, there's not the materials to do it either. So I think there is a responsibility. And we try to prov provide some of this material, decision aids and the NHS and things like that, to provide some of this material. Because if it's good and it's well-designed, it really helps everybody. It helps the communication, and not just with the doctors, but the practice nurses, the, the all the other healthcare staff. It helps the conversation. If the people have got good materials that explain these things clearly, tested, got to test the materials on people. So, because otherwise, how is anyone's going to explain a one in 100,000 risk of death or something? It's really difficult. 
look, just, just last week in Tahoe, just three hours from my house, uh, there was an avalanche uh, on the most popular uh, expert trail in the most popular resort in Tahoe, and it killed somebody. And I, I was kind of astonished because what they had done is that it was the first run of the day right after a storm, and they, they told everybody, ski at your own risk. Okay. And so this was sort of how they, you know, waived responsibility. They said, it's risky, right? And so, yeah, of course it's risky. Like how risky, you know, everything's risky, right? <laughs> Obviously it's hard to come up with an accurate number, but we know that there's, for instance, with risk of fire, there's, there's green, yellow, red, and we have some sense, but they're all domain specific, right? So we, we know that a double black diamond is riskier than a, than a blue Again, it's re- it'd be really good for if you've got risk scales. They've probably got some ca- criteria where they close them. They must have criteria where they close them when they open, when they're just open, or when they're open with a warning. Or maybe there's another level as well where there's another where you can only go there in certain circumstances. So they must have some criteria of setting those. And it would be very useful, I think, if you're explaining those to people to be able to say to calibrate it out of a you know, hundred days when we've done this has happened or something like that. So why they might be making these decisions because of the accidents that have happened. Yeah, I would like to know what's if I was going to go out on that trail, I'd like to know what's the experience on this. So, you know, if everyone goes out, <laughs> you doubt they would have closed it. But it's like when I was being wheeled in for some surgical procedure, I did what I'd always said I was going to do, which is as I was on the trolley, I said, how many of these have you done? <laughs> and, and the guy, bless him, said, Oh, there's always got to be a first time. <laughs> so, so we both fell about laughing, which really hurt me because I was in agony at the time. So I fell about. He said, "I've done forty-five of these, and it's not been a problem." So I said, "Fine, okay, we'll be in." But because I always, th- it is a good, but it takes a little bit of determination to ask something like that. But it's the right thing to ask. You want a calibration? Now, I want to ask you just one question about this book on sex because. You were part of this big study that asked all sorts of questions for British people. This seems like an area where it's very difficult to get good data. Kinsey was famous for having released this survey, and it's kind of a junk survey. Very difficult to rely on this information. Not as bad as sheer height, but pretty bad. Yeah, but I used one of the the images in your book I've used in my class for a long time, which is self-reported number of sexual partners, right, for heterosexuals. Oh, yeah. I use that in all my talks. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So is, I, so I could give a whole lecture just on that graph, yeah. And this poses challenges. We do surveys for lots of things, right? We ask people a lot, we, lots of self-report, lots of stated preferences. Shouldn't they come with a bit of a warning, right? Shouldn't we always have disclaimers about, I know there's this, there's this tribe, I think, in Australia or something, I remember, that where they can't say anything without also saying where they got the information from and, and how confident they are. I mean, should we all be like that? I have a colleague who says that you should never set, make any claim without a confidence interval. Should we do that in our everyday lives? Yeah, I think so. I, I tried it. In the book, I, I used the star rating system, just roughly statistics being one, two, three, or four stars. And Kinsey got two and surveys got three. And if I can count things, they get four. It's a very rough idea. A good survey will get three. So it's a rough idea of, and this idea of quality ratings, almost star ratings for the scientific merit, the quality of the evidence is catching on. It's quite a lot of people are doing it now. And I think this is something that not just we should ask personally, but we should ask from our scientists. In COVID or whatever, they should have been saying how confident they were. So in terms of vaccine efficacy, that was they were pretty confident about that. They could give a confidence that these were good randomized trials. Blah, blah, blah. But in, in terms of other things, the effectiveness of masks, they, they really, the evidence is incredibly poor. 
got really very little idea of what's going on and what the effectiveness is. And so in the UK, they did try the the scientists, the Science Advisory Committee at a confidence scale, low to medium, high and high, confident in their conclusions. So their understanding of what was going on. And it, it didn't get much publicity, but for people who knew about it, it's incredibly valuable. And now I do it. I do it in my statistical analysis. So I do all the model, calculate everything, blah, 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 and then say, it's not very good. <laughs> No, some stuff we did recently, very high profile, which only got median confidence in this. There's so many assumptions. We're really, and other things, we got very high confidence because we can count things. We've got really good data. And I I was asked to do one analysis where I said, sorry, my my confidence is so low. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to give you a number because my confidence is so low. IPCC use confidence ratings for their claims about climate change. The grade rating is used in medicine, a four-level star rating for their confidence in the conclusions of clinical trials. It's something that's really catching on, that you don't just can't you don't just do your calculations, calculate your statistics. And even the confidence interval, because I don't believe confidence they're too narrow, always too narrow, because they're all assuming the data's perfect, and it's not. It's this extra level where you allowed to say how good you think your work is, how good the evidence is. Now, this requires some humility and honesty and so on. It really is reliant. But there are algorithms in medicine for trying to do that. I think this is the big idea for the future, and I think it's going to become more it's going to move away from this idea that somehow we can do everything with a statistical software. And if it comes to data science, it's exactly, you can do all these calculations, come out with all the stuff, but it might be complete crap. You know, you might have just got your data, it's bad data, it's very highly selected, it's not appropriate, it's hopelessly biased, and so on. You might actually have very tight intervals, and often with big data, you can get very tight, but they're totally meaningless. So I, th- I think that sort of recognition requires insight and honesty and humility to actually admit when you don't know is incredible. As what actually, I'm giving a plug for my book because this features quite strongly in my book on uncertainty, that not all uncertainty can be just read off a statistical package. Well, maybe in your tenure file, right, we, we will start to take that into consideration. Yeah, at the moment, it depends on which journal it appears in and stuff like that, that you hope that stuff that appears in science and nature are going to be four-star studies. But I, in my mind, star rate everything I read. I read a study, and I think one star, if that, and, oh, this is five stars. This is a randomized clinical trial with a, by a really good team. Give it five stars. So I'm doing it all the time in my mind, putting it on this qualitative scale, because I've been doing this for 50 sodding years. And I think that, for me, is incredibly valuable. And uh, I think actually to try to formalize that a bit more is a really valuable thing to do. Now, last question. You were at one point the a professor of the public communication of risk, I guess it was. I've actually interviewed a couple different professors and academics at British universities who have a similar type of title. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, you've done them. You're great. Yeah. And we don't have a title like that in, in the US. And, and so I'm wondering, is your kind of tenure and promotion file dependent in part on your ability to engage with journalists and communicate with the public as opposed to simply publishing in journals is this a, is this something we should maybe think about doing more of certainly importing into the u.s system absolutely absolutely no at one time i'm not sure we've still got them but we had a public un- professor for the public understanding of risk understanding of science understanding of psychology understanding of philosophy all of these now in my case and i think probably all of them the point is they're philanthropically funded 
That's who you should be getting at. You've got stacks of rich people who give money to universities. They can have it named after them, but you've got to find some rich people who really believe that it would benefit society to have kind of academics who know what they're talking about helping the public understanding of a subject. And so the point is that for the job I got, it was, I did actually teach and I didn't need promotion, but it definitely was part of the job to get out there and communicate. I, and so I did media, you know, lots of wrote book, like popular books you're talking about, but I did a lot of media work, made TV programs, did all that stuff. And we got a really strong tradition in the UK of academics getting out there and making the TV programs. So the TV programs being fronted by the academics, not a celebrity. And so that's to build on that tradition. It was good fun. It was a great thing to do. So I think it's something, and I've had, had lots of contact with people in the States who've said, why haven't we got something like this? Because the point about people in this, with this sort of role, and if they're, you know, any good at all at talking to the media, they get, you, you get contacted a lot because me, I love someone who can come and talk about these things. And so you become quite popular with journalists and other people if you can help explain things. So I, I think it's an incredibly valuable thing, and I'm hugely grateful. It was a hedge fund manager, David Harding, who funded my post, and I'm incredibly grateful for him um, for, I think, it's a service to the community. Yeah. So you need to just find a few billionaire hedge fund managers and get them to do it. You've got stocks of them, unless they're in jail. So get them before they're locked up. I like this idea. I'm going to, I'm going to promote this idea. And I'm also going to promote this book, The Art of Statistics and the Norm Chronicles and the new book when it comes out. David, thanks so much for joining me. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.